Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. And now, Good morning. My name is Stephen Reed, and uh, I work with the campus ministry over at NC State. Uh, Bobby, as he mentioned in the video, he's not able to be here this morning, and so he asked me, get this, like, this man's on top of things. He asked me on June 14th. I mean, we're in September. He asked me on June 14th. Man, that's crazy. So he said, hey, can you, can you preach on September 5th? And I was like, yeah, sure, I can do that. Um, he said, we're going to be starting a new series. Are you cool with launching it? And I was like, I mean, if you trust me to do it, sure. <laughs> and he was like, all right, let's do it. So uh, this morning, we're going to talk about this series called Not Ashamed. Um, well, how many of you guys have heard of the California Raisins? How many of you guys are old enough to even know what that is? All right, so I was born in California. So for me, California Raisins were not just like something that, you know, I knew about. They were, they were like toys that I had. Like I had little, uh, those plastic hard toys were like, a, like three inches big, almost like G.I. Joe, but for like California raisins, you know? And I mean, if you don't know what it is, it's, it's, it, well, whatever. So I had, I had those little toys. I had like plush dolls and, 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 and like stuffed animals that were just California raisins. Well, my parents moved to North Carolina whenever I was, uh, when I was five. And I know this does not exist, but I had a dream, I had a nightmare that the North Carolina raisins came to my house. We had been in our new house for about, I don't know, uh, for about two weeks or so, and I had this dream that the North Carolina raisins came. I probably shouldn't walk. I'll just stay over here because it gets, it gets vibey over there. Um, so I, I, I had this dream that they came to the house. They, they put me on the front porch, on the stoop of the front porch, and they, like, tied up my family, my, my mom, my dad, my brother, and they put them in one, like, one of those, like, white vans with no windows, right? And they just drove off, leaving me to watch them drive off. I'm like, man. And I woke up, and I was like, Mom, Dad, we're moving back. Like, I don't, I don't want to be here. Like, I don't want to be in North Carolina. Um, I remember another time, I remember another time I had this dream about the Little Mermaid. How many of you guys have ever seen the Little Mermaid? Uh, so I had just seen the Little Mermaid, and Ursula, man, she scared the poo out of me. Like, like nightmare city for me as well. And I woke up and I, 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 I was freaking out and I was like, I, I never want to get in the ocean again. I don't even want to go on land close to the ocean. Like, I, that's just weird. That's just creepy. I don't want that. Um, I, think, I think all of us have things in life that scare us. I think all of us have things in life that give us fear. And on a serious note, a couple weeks ago, I went to pick up my daughter from school. And... Um, I open up the, door, the, the van door, and as she's getting in, I was like, hey, love, how was your day? And she puts her, her thumb sideways, and it's shaky. And, um, and she, she, she gets kind of teary-eyed, and she said, Dad, um, it wasn't a good day. Today at recess, and I, I won't go into details because it's, I just won't, but today at recess, one of my friends told me that she doesn't think she wants to be my friend anymore. And we talked about that, and as we kept driving, she goes, Dad, but that's, that's not everything. Um, I did not do very good on my first test in third grade. Now, I don't know about you guys. I don't know if you know this about, if, if you know, about, I, I didn't know this until I had a daughter in third grade. But in first and second grade, for lack of better phrasing, the tests don't matter. In third grade, they start getting standardized tests. And this is when, this is when the pressure's on. And my daughter, as we're driving home, she's now crying. And she says, Dad, I'm scared that I don't have any friends and that I'm stupid. I don't know about you, but as a father, nothing breaks my heart more than when my kids are hurting. 
Nothing hurts my, and I just want to sweep them up and just pretend like it's no big deal, or I, or I want to fix it. If I can't pretend it's not real, I want to fix it. And, man, we spent the next, like, from 3 o'clock in the afternoon until 5 o'clock or 8 o'clock when she went to bed for the next five hours, and I just, I, I hugged her and snuggled with her and, and showed her how beautiful she was, not, not, on, like, not on the outside, or sorry, not on the in, wow, not on the outside, but on the inside, how valuable she was and how, how good she was, and, and if someone doesn't want to be your friend, that's their loss, and, and talking about, like, see how smart you are, look at this, look how brilliant you are, and I tried to give her all the love and all the value that she needs to, to get through this, but at the end of the day, I went to bed, and I was heartbroken. I went to bed and I was crushed. Um, again, I think if all of us are honest, I think there are things, whether you're eight years old and you're in third grade, or whether you're 80 years old, I think we'll have things in our life that scare us. I think we'll have a lot of things in our lives that, for lack of better words, can almost cripple us. And this morning, we're launching a series called Not Ashamed, and I want to talk about the idea of what do we do with our fears? What do we do when life... Um, when life is scary, what do we do with that? Our story is going to take place in Second Timothy. This is our, our first slide here. Um, if you guys have your Bibles and want to turn there, you can, just so you know I'm not making this stuff up. But I've also got the passage here on the screen. Uh, I will say this. Um, I know this is, this, this, uh, this is my philosophy as a teacher. I like to have as much of the text on the screen as possible so that you know that I'm not just pulling out one random verse at a time to trick you. This is my way of letting you guys see all of it. And if your eyes can't see that, then, then open your Bible up and you can see it there. So this is my way of trying to be as honest with the text as possible with the passage as possible. So we're going to take a look this morning at 2 Timothy to launch this series called Not Ashamed. And to give you guys a background while you're turning to 2 Timothy, to give you guys a background on who wrote this and what this is written for and who was the recipient and when it was written, um, I just want to show you guys that verses 1 and 2, basically the Apostle Paul says, hey, Timothy, it's me writing this to you and you are my dearly beloved son. To give you a background on who Paul is, Paul is one of the um, um, he's one of the apostles in the New Testament. He's one of the guys in the book of Acts that goes on multiple missionary trips. And he is responsible for the majority of the New Testament letters. They call those epistles. He is the guy who, he would travel around to the ancient known, or to the, to the Roman Empire. He would travel around to like Asia Minor. And he'd travel around to places like um, at Rome and Athens and Corinth and Thessalonica and to uh, Ephesus and to Philippi. He would travel to these different cities. And as he would go there, he would preach the gospel. There would be conversions. And then there he would start choosing elders and deacons. And then he would appoint ministers. And he'd establish this house church in this city. And then repeat in another city. And this was Paul's life. This is how Paul lived his ministry life for the, for the gospel. And um, it was around AD 52, 53, sometime, somewhere in that time period, that he first meets Timothy. He first meets Timothy in Lystra, and then for the next probably about 10 to 15 years, Timothy and Paul have this deep, deep relationship where sometimes even Timothy travels with Paul to some of the places. In fact, the book of Corinth, at the, very end of the, uh, at the very end of the Corinthian letter, Paul writes and says, hey, I'm sending to you guys Timothy. So for even a little bit of time, Timothy went to Corinth to kind of do the work whenever Paul was somewhere else. And, and Paul just said, I'm going to give you guys Timothy to continue to teach and to continue to preach there. And eventually, Timothy landed at Ephesus. And Timothy landed in Ephesus where he was the, the head minister there for that church. And so, to understand, um, this, this letter was written in around A.D. 67. Uh, most scholars believe that it was one of Paul's last, if not his last letter that he wrote. And they believe that shortly after he wrote this, in fact, if you take a look at chapter 3 and chapter 4 of this letter, Paul basically writes almost like his farewell letter to Timothy. I mean, it's moving, it's touching. 
And he basically says, I want you to know that this, this letter has three main points. Ministry is hard. You're going to suffer, but keep fighting the good fight. That's the whole premise of 2 Timothy. And so in this series of Not Ashamed, I wanted you guys to see that Paul is writing to, in verse 2 of, of chapter 1, he says, to my dearly beloved son. He's not his biological son. It's this, it's this mentor-mentee. It's this Padawan. It's this protege. It is this deep, deep connectedness that he has with Timothy. And he writes to him in verse 3. He says, man, I, 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 I love your tears that you have for me. I'm, I'm reminded of them, and I pray for you. And then in verse 4 and 5, he tells him, look, I, I know the mother, or sorry, I know the faith that was in your grandmother, Lois, and I know the faith was in your mother Eunice and I am convinced beyond a doubt that that same faith dwells inside of you and so then he tells him fan into flame the spirit that God gave you and I laid my hands on you and which brings us to chapter sorry which brings us to verse 7 verse 7 is where Paul writes to him and he says this for God has not given us a spirit of fear but one of power love and sound judgment so don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. This morning, I want to talk about this idea of what does it mean to not be ashamed with an emphasis on verse 7 and 8. And in verse 7, um, it says, For God did not give us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. I think this is probably one of the, uh, I, th- I think this is quoted very frequently. How many of you guys have ever heard that verse before? I will, I, will, I will get a little risky here, and I will say I believe that that verse is quoted properly, but it's misunderstood entirely. I think whenever we say, God didn't give me a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, or a spirit of boldness, or a spirit of love, or a spirit of self-control, I think what we say, or at least what, what, whatever has come to my mind whenever I've either heard it or said it, typically what's going on in my mind is, God didn't give me a spirit of option A, fear, but he gave me a spirit of option B, these other three things. In Greek, in Koine Greek, the word for fear is phobos. And this is not the word that Paul uses whenever he said he did not give us a spirit of fear. You see, in Greek, phobos is neutral. It's, it's neither good nor bad. It all depends on the context to determine if it's good or bad. Like, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That, that's a good kind of fear. But the fear of man and, and, like, doing stupid things, like, that's a bad kind of fear, right? Well, in, what, in, in, in his letter to Timothy, this is our next slide here, in the letter to Timothy, he writes, and he says, God did not give us a spirit of dalios. Now, dalios means timidity. It means fearfulness, and it means cowardice. It is a word that does not often appear in our New Testament, unlike phobos, which appears almost 100 times. Delios does not appear that frequently. And in the common culture of the day, whenever the word delios is used, at, at best it means timidity. But typically, and on average, it meant cowardice. And so Paul is saying this, and I, I think this is phenomenal. God did not give us a spirit of cowardice. Some translations, like the NIV says, God did not give us a spirit that makes us timid. And I like that so much more than I like God did not give us a spirit of fear. Because I believe if I were to tell my daughter, ah, you didn't have a friend who didn't say that. That's not real. Or, eh, you didn't do so bad on the test. I mean, think of somebody else who did worse. Like, if I just brushed it off, that would do no good. Paul is not saying deny that you have fears. Paul is not saying that you can't have fears. Paul is not even saying that you are less of worthy if you have fears. His statement of do not fear, God did not give us a spirit of fear. His statement is God did not give us a spirit of cowardice. And to me, that's a big difference. 
Like I said, I believe it's quoted properly, but I think it's misunderstood. And so this morning, I want to take some time to talk about, okay, well, what are the other things that he does give us? If, if we're supposed to combat cowardice with something, what do we combat it with? And the next word that he uses, our next slide, it says dinamos. He said, for God gave us a spirit of dinamos. And dinamos means power, so rightly translated. It means might. Anytime the New Testament talks about God's mighty hand and it's written in Greek, it uses the word dunamis. I love this because where we get our word dynamite. Bobby has said this before in some of his sermons, but dynamite, dynamite is explosive. Dynamite is an eruption of energy. And if I can use the word again, it's power wrapped up in a small little nugget. Like it's just, it's just power. And I appreciate that Paul did not just leave it at this. Paul did not say, hey, uh, you, you don't have a spirit of cowardice, but you've got a spirit that comes out guns blazing every single time. He did not say, you've got a spirit of only power, and that any time that there's anything wrong, you just, you just attack it headstrong. That's not what he said. But that is in there. Power is in there. Might is in there. And he, go, he goes to the next word, and it's agape. And I love this word agape. It is, in the New Testament, it refers, this is our next slide, it refers to God's love. It refers to heavenly love. And it refers to sacrificial love. Go back one. Oh, is agape not in there? It must not have uh, transported over properly. All right, so you just have to trust me on this. Agape is the word that means God's, uh, God's type of love. Type, type of love. It, is, it is covenant love. It is God saying, I unconditionally, covenantly love you. And then get this. It's the kind of love that he wants us to have for him. And not only that, it's the kind of love that he wants us to have for those around us. Enemy or friend. God gave us a spirit of power and a spirit of love and the third one he gave us is this sophonismos word. And sophonismos, some translations say self-discipline, some say self-control, some say of sound mind. Um, I won't get into all the details except for, except for the idea that it, it basically just means sound mind, sober-mindedness. There are other translations, or sorry, there's other passages where Paul writes about elders should be of sound mind and not, you know, and, uh, of sober mind, or they shouldn't be drunk. And, and in that context, this sophronismos, the form of the word is used. Sophronismos is one of the words that is, is used to describe prudence, uh, which means basically that you show care for the future. It means that you act properly right now so that the future is impacted for the good. It means that you, you are, you're, you're, you're clearly thinking. Um, so then go, go back to our passage. Paul said, for God did not, verse 7, for God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but one of dynamite, of agape-ness, of, of, of this heavenly love, and of sobriety, sound judgment, clarity of mind. So do not be ashamed of the testimony, which means the gospel, which means your story. What has God done for you? Don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me as his prisoner. Um, Paul, whenever he was going through the Roman world, anytime that he would get in trouble with the Roman Empire, which was quite frequent, uh, it was because of his preaching. It was because he was going around and he was saying, hey, Jesus is Lord. And that goes against the Roman Empire, which says Caesar is Lord. And then he would go around and he would be preaching, for the kingdom of God is like this, and the kingdom of God is great, and, and nothing is greater than the kingdom of heaven. And at that time, Caesar and Rome was like, no, there's nothing greater than our empire. So he was often arrested. And when he was arrested, it began out with him being in like house, house arrest, which was either in his house or in somebody else's house. But the idea behind it was he'd go to a house, and there'd be a guard that was either at the room or outside the door. He had freedom to and from the house, or at least inside the house. He had freedom to kind of cook, you know, whatever he wanted to cook, as long as it wasn't bacon, because, you know, Jewish. Um, 
And, and he, uh, so he had all these freedoms inside a house, but then as his egregiences got more, and by egregiances I mean doing the right thing, he says, Paul says to Timothy, don't be ashamed of me being in prison. Like most people when they're in prison, they deserve to be there. I, I deserve to be here if the accusation is that I preached Christ, because that is true. And so he's saying, don't be ashamed. People are going to say, oh, Paul, he's, he's gone off the deep end. He's in prison. And he's like, yeah, I'm in prison for preaching the gospel. Don't be ashamed. And, and most scholars believe that he was in what's called a, a dungeon prison, which basically is like the next step before you basically kill the guy. Uh, the Roman Empire, as I mentioned, the Roman Empire did not like him preaching, did not like him teaching about Jesus. And so eventually they ended up uh, killing him for his faith. And this is one of the last letters that he wrote, and I believe that he knew full well that death was on his doorstep. And he writes to him and says, God did not give you a spirit of cowardice. He gave you a spirit of power, of love, of sound mind or sound judgment or self-discipline, depending on, on, depending on your translation. And then he says, do not be ashamed. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. I want to share with us, I want to transition right now to the story in the book of Mark. If you guys have your Bibles and want to turn to Mark with us, you can. Um, this story begins... The story begins in verse, uh, verse 1 of chapter 5, and he says, They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. All right, so who's they, and what is the lake? So I've got a, I've got a picture here, of, or I've got some maps here that I want to show you guys. Right here, these are, this is the same region, except this right here is like blown up of right here. So just to kind of let you know, this is the area in which Jesus spent most of his ministry life. And on the left side, or on the western side of the Dead Sea, and on the Sea of Galilee, and on the Jordan River, you have um, basically the, the, the Jewish nation, the land of Israel. You've got Jerusalem, you've got Judea, um, uh, Bethlehem, right here is Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem, and here's the region of Judea. And Jesus would spend most of his time either in Judea and Jerusalem area, or he'd spend it up north in the Sea of Galilee area. And, and on the right here, on the right side, we've got the Sea of Galilee. And right now, he's, he's over in this area, and the beginning of our chapter, verse 1, it says, and he travels over, they, being him and his disciples, travel over to the land of the Gerasenes, which is the region that contains the city of Gergesa. And this is important that we know that the Decapolis, which is, it just means ten cities, it was a Greek, it was a Greco-Roman world, and it was a Greek air t territory. It was Gentile territory. There's not a lot of Jewish people living here. So the Decapolis is a pagan, pagan land. Um, also, just below uh, Gregesa is Hippos. And Hippos is going to be important for us a little bit later on. Hippos is known for its pagan and, and, and demonic worship. So, back to chapter 5, verse 1. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, and he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out, and he would cut himself with stones." Jesus gets off the boat in this Gentile territory, and there's this man who is demon-possessed. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all write about this account, and Luke, whenever he talks about the story, he, he tells us that this man was naked, and he also tells us that he was demon-possessed for a long time. Now, I don't know how long a long time is. You can dissect the Greek, and it just means a long time, but I guarantee you that's more than like a day. It's more than a couple of months. For it to be a long time, it's probably a couple of years, if not maybe a decade or more. So this man has been demon-possessed, 
And it does not surprise me that right down below south is the city of Hippos, where you have all of this devil worship and demon worship and Wiccan and, and all the pagan deity worship that's taking place there. It doesn't surprise me that at some point these demon spirits, these, these unpure spirits, get inside this man. Now, this man is not named. So I want you guys to help me out. Um, what do you guys want to name this guy? Bart? All right, let's call him Bart. So Bart does not have a name in our scripture, so for the sake of just being able to call him a name, let's call him Bart, right? So Jesus gets out of a boat, and he sees this man coming to him, to which if I'm Jesus, and I see some guy who is demon-possessed, screaming at the top of his lungs, has been bound by chains, and his feet have been bound by chains at least once in his life, if not multiple times, and if he just broke them off, um, there's possibility that, like, you don't break those kinds of shackles, you don't break those kind of shackles and not leave cuts and mars and wounds on your skin. So he's got, he's got wounds, possibly that have already started to heal, or possibly that were pretty fresh. So you've got this guy who's got at least the signs of wounds, if not naked, bloody, or at least covered in old blood, and he sleeps among the tombs, so he's probably got some stench and some funk on him, right? There's this man who's coming at Jesus, screaming at the top of his lungs, and if I'm Jesus, I'm like, nope. Like, I'm just like, not today. I'm not dealing with that today. I'm not going to get into a conversation with this demon-possessed man, because I, I'm scared of Ursula. <laughs> like, I'm not going to deal with this guy. Um, but Jesus is not like me. This man comes running, and it says that when he saw Jesus, he ran to Jesus, and then he fell down at his feet. Now, I, I don't know how demon possession works in its entirety. I don't know if, if you're always possessed. I don't know if you have moments of clarity, and then you have moments of just muddled brain, and it's just, it's just possession. I, I don't know. I tend to think from different stories in the New Testament that at least many people had, had some moments of, of like, normalcy, and then when the spirit would come upon you, then you start foaming, and then you start falling to the ground, and then you start rolling around in the mud. And Like, I don't know, but possibly this man never even had that. Possibly this man always had his, his, his mind garbled. But I don't know. He ran, but then whenever he talks, it's the demon speaking. So it's, it's this weird, it's this, I, I honestly, I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs of this story and how his possession worked, but I do know that he ran to Jesus and he fell down on his knees. Now that's, I don't want to make much of this, but that's the same word that we use for worship. It's proskuneo. He falls on his knees and he, he bows down. The demons bow down in worship. And I think they bow, they bow down not necessarily in worship because I don't want to get into theology about like can, can demons worship, but I will say this. They recognize dinamos. They come to Jesus and they see Dinamos and they can't do anything except fall down on the ground in front of them, in front of him, sorry, in front of Jesus. And, and, and the man cries out, Jesus, what are you going to do with us? Mark says, are you going to destroy us before our proper time? And, and whenever Luke talks about it, he says, are you going to cast us into the abyss? Again, I don't know all about demon possession and it almost seems as if there's this, for lack of better words, contract understanding that Jesus or, or, or God has with the evil one that says, until I come back again for my second coming, you can have reign on the earth. You can have dominion over the earth. You can have, you can have your way with the earth, kind of like the story of Job. It does not take away from God's sovereignty. Hear me on that. But it seems as if the demons know there's a time period in which they can do kind of what they want with willing people. And until Christ comes back, they have their way. 
And they say to him, what are you going to do to us, son of God, son of the most high? In verse 8, for Jesus had been saying, come out of this man, you impure spirits. Then verse 9, Jesus does something that, um, man, this entire story perplexes me. But Jesus does something that is completely unlike what I would do. It is a good thing I'm not Jesus. Again, if I were Jesus, I would have turned right back around and got on that boat and made sure that my disciples, make sure that my family was safe. But Jesus, he engages this guy in conversation. He gives this man, aside from healing and aside from salvation, he gives him the very next thing, the most important thing that this man needs, and that is simply just a conversation with somebody. He engages him, and what does he say? Hey, man, what's your name? Are you kidding me? Some crazy lunatic dude's running at you, and you're like, hey, man, what's your name? Um... I, which I guess I can kind of relate to. I mean, if I, was, if I was Jesus enough to overcome the cowardice of just shrieking back, I guess I could do what's normal and just say, in normal conversations, I introduce myself. Hey, my name is Stephen Reed. What's yours? Or, hey, I'm Stephen. And then you kind of expect them to fill in the blank of who they are. Well, this man already knows who Jesus is. So Jesus is just reciprocating back in normal. You are a human. You have value. I agape you. I unconditionally love you. It doesn't matter what your past was. It doesn't matter if you were in Hippos area and that you had worshipped pagans. It doesn't matter if you have demons living inside of you. I still love you. And so I think this man is starting to see that there is something more powerful than what lives in him, which is crazy. We'll talk about that in a second. There's something more powerful than what lives in him, and it's in Jesus. And there's something more loving than what has been shown to him by his community. And that's also in Jesus. The story goes on. What is your name? He says, my name is Legion. He replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again, do not send them out of the area. Um, some scholars will argue that whenever the demons say our name is Legion, they're like flexing their muscles. They're basically like a mama bear saying, hey, Jesus, we want you to know that if you attack us, it's 2,000 against one. And that possibly is part of the situation. You don't use the word legion unless you're referring to a, a military concept. It's like the word brigade or pl platoon. You know, you, it's, it was a term for the Greco-Roman world that meant between two to 6,000. In our story here, it's roughly 2,000 because what we'll see later on. But there are other scholars, and, and this is the way that I agree with it. This is the way that I line up with it. Most scholars just say it's just a statement of fact. And the reason why is there is too much begging taking place for these demons to be like, hey, Jesus... If it's us against you, we're 2,000 and you're one. I think if they fall on the ground and for Jesus and they keep saying, please don't destroy us, like, I, I don't think they're flexing. I think it's just a matter of fact, we're 2,000. So our, our next slide here, verse 11. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the, on the nearby hillside. The demons begged Jesus, again, they're begging, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them, get this, permission. That's, that's, that's power. The demons have done their way with this man. And Jesus is the one who tells them what to do. Jesus gives them permission. He allows it to happen. The impure spirits came out and went to the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. This man has been so haunted that these pigs have these spirits for moments and they lose their minds and run off a cliff and die. And he has been living with this for, as Luke says, a long time. And this man is bloody, bruised, battered, haunted. His life is dark. And in a split moment, Jesus changes it with his power and with his love. Verse 14, those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. This is an important verse. 
15 and 16. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there dressed and in his right mind, which is another one of those words for sophonismos, sophonismoi. He's in his right mind. And they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. In the Greek, the structure of the sentence basically says that that was the more important thing they talked about. They went around and they said, guys, you remember Bart, that crazy lunatic dude? Like, yeah, he's healed. But uh, Jesus destroyed 2,000 of our pigs. And I think what Jesus is trying to tell us in this story is if you think that the economy that matters to God is pigs, money, wealth, your house, your car, what status you have, anything except a person or people, if you think that God cares about anything more than people, you have misunderstood the gospel. These people are saying, hey, Bart's, Bart's good, uh, but the pigs, man, the pigs. Um, and, and, and think about it if you're Bart. You've just seen someone com- have um, tremendous power. The kind of power that when they, the, the demons go into the pigs, the pigs have a split, a split second, and they lose their minds and go crazy and die. He's dwelt with this and, and lived with this for a long time, and Jesus comes by, and in a moment, they're gone. Like, he knows, Bart, Bart knows what kind of power Jesus has because he knows what was casting fear in him, and it's gone. And he knows the love that Jesus has, especially contrasted with the love that the people did not have for him. They cared more about the story of the pigs than they did Bart. So verse 18, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Bart goes to Jesus and says, Jesus, you love me way more than they do. Can I go with you? And Jesus did not let him. Everything about the story is like the exact opposite of what I would do. Jesus did not let him, and I think this is so important, but he said, go home to your own people. Go home, Bart. Go home. Go home to your people. You have no idea how messed up this demon possession has left you. You have no idea the scars. You have no idea the pain. You have no idea the fear, the anxiety. You have no idea what, has, what this has done to you. You need to go home and be restored to family. If you've got parents that are alive, go spend time with them. If you've got brothers and sisters, go spend time with them. If you have a family of your own, if you, if you have a wife and you have kids, you need to go and be restored to them. You need to go home. You need to be restored. And then while you were on the way... Tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and he began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him and all the people were amazed. Jesus tells him, "Um, I I know you want to follow me, but you're going to follow me in a different way than what you think. You want to walk the same streets that I do, but I want to walk with you in the streets that you go. Whenever you go home, when you go to the Decapolis, when you go to your hometown, when you go from Gergesa down to Hippos, down to the region of the Decapolis, when you go in there, I want you to to be restored and have community, and I want you to tell people about me. This series, we're talking about not being ashamed. And I want to wrap up with this idea. If um, If you want to not be ashamed of your faith, if you want to not be ashamed of your story, if, if there's fears and there's doubts, and I get it, I get it, I know sharing your story is tough. 
Paul, in another letter to Philemon, wrote, it's only one chapter long, so it's ironic to say chapter one, verse six, because it's just, it's just verse six. But in Philemon, he writes to him, and the NIV back in, and, and the old, older translations, it used to say, God, sorry, I pray that you would be active in sharing your faith so that you may know every good thing that we have in Christ. And I think that is crucial. If you want to understand the good things we have in Christ, Keep telling the stories of what God has done for you over and over and over again. Be active in talking about Jesus. Be active in sharing your faith so that you can remind yourself and those around you. A little bit later on, this is Mark chapter 5, a little bit later on in 7 and in chapter 8, Jesus goes back to the Decapolis. He goes back to this Gentile pagan land, and there he meets this Syrophoenician woman. There he meets a guy who is deaf and, and, and mute, and Jesus heals the Syrophoenician, uh, the Syrophoenician woman's daughter, and he loosens this man's ears and his tongue, and he can speak. And then he goes deeper into the Decapolis, and in chapter 8, Jesus has a crowd of 4,000 people gathered. This is different than the feeding of the 5,000. This is the feeding of the 4,000. If you didn't know, there's two feedings in the scriptures. There are, and they're actually, Mark records both, so it's not like a, it's not like a whoops, it's a repeat. It's, it's twice. And he's in Decapolis, and there's 4,000 people that are there gathered to hear Jesus, and I, I guarantee you, Bart had something to do with it. Even, even if it was just one or two people that heard the story, Bart had a reason or a responsibility. He, he, had, he, he was part of the reason why there was 4,000. So my question to you is this. What is your Decapolis? What is your Decapolis? Um, the very end of 2 Timothy 1, verses 8, he says, Don't be ashamed of the gospel. Don't be ashamed of your testimony. Don't be ashamed of your story. And don't be ashamed of me in prison. Uh, my challenge for you guys is I don't know what your Decapolis is. I don't even know who your Decapolis is. Your Decapolis may be your family. Your Decapolis may be your work environment. Your Decapolis may be your next door neighbor. I, again, I don't know who your Decapolis is, but there is somebody out there that needs to hear what God has done for you. And it doesn't have to be some Bible-thumping thing. All, like, all you gotta say is, man, I, I once was like this I was, once, I was once filled with anger and rage and lust and bitterness and greed and pride and whatever else it might be, just pick one because that's a little overwhelming, but just like I was once this way and now because of the power of the cross and because of the love of the cross, I have the ability to, to think prudently, to think carefully, to, to say, you know what, with God's spirit, the spirit of a sound mind and the spirit of love and the spirit of power, I'm going to overcome this greed and this pride. And my life is now different because of what Jesus has done for me. Paul writes to Timothy and says, do not be ashamed. And my prayer for you guys is that we would not be ashamed as well. That we would go into our Decapolis, we'd be restored with our families and those who love us, and we would make more friends and find more people who love us. And along the way, we would take Jesus with us and share the story of what he's done for us. I'm going to close this in prayer. Father, as, as, as always, I pray if there's anything that I said that was wrong, that your spirit would have just muted the ear so they didn't hear it. Um, and if there's anything that I said that was true, that you would just resonate it and that it would echo and it would amplify in their life and it would, it would echo in their ears tomorrow and, and next week and next month and next year, that we would learn to be people that live as if we're walking in a Decapolis and then we have to take you with us. Father, may your spirit of, of dynamite be an explosive, life-giving explosive force for you. And that your spirit of love would be a life-giving 
source of love for the world around us. And that we would have a sound mind and we would be able to look at not phobos, but the delios, the, the cowardice. We would be able to look at that and say, I, I choose not to be a coward. In spite or despite of my fears, I'm going to not be a coward. I'm going to live with a sound mind and I'm going to live with love and live through your power. Father, may the world, may the world come to know you because we were like Bart and we went into our Decapolis. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement MC.